You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventures from throughout history. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Great War episode 229. This week a big thank you goes out to Steven for their support on Patreon, where they now get access to special ad-free versions of all of these episodes, plus special Patreon-only episodes released every month. If that sounds interesting to you, head on over to patreon.com slash historyofthegreatwar to find out more information. Also, a big shout out goes to Kelly for their donation to the podcast this week. Thank you. Last week, we discussed some of the events in Germany in late 1918 and early 1919. Today, we will continue those events as we move our story forward, past the period of revolution from the left and into the period of attempts by the right to overthrow the government. In 1920, these efforts would result in the Kopp Push. This push would see Wolfgang Kopp put in control of Berlin by military veterans and other members of the Free Corps. These groups were unhappy with the changes made to the government in the wake of the First World War, and the concessions that had been made to the Socialists during the weeks immediately before the end of that war. The Kopp Push would be successful, at least for a few days, before the government was saved by the workers. These were the same workers that the government had spent so much time and energy trying to keep under control during 1919. These events would perfectly illustrate the fact that the Weimar government, trying desperately to hold the center, was constantly under attack from both sides. During the second half of this episode, we will also look at some of the events in other areas of Germany during the first few years of the Weimar government. We will discuss the plebiscite in Upper Silesia that had been mandated by the Versailles Treaty, some events that occurred in Saxony, which made it very clear that the Social Democrats' views on socialism had changed over the years, and then on some of the economic problems that the Weimar government would have to try and work through during its first few years of existence. On August 11, 1919, the Weimar government would officially be created with the signing of the Weimar Constitution. It was a parliamentary republic which traced its direct roots back to the coalition of parties that had stepped into the leadership void near the end of the First World War. During late October and early November 1918, they had taken control of the German government in the hopes of negotiating a peace with the Allies. 
It's worth stating that at the time of its creation, the Weimar coalition represented a large majority of the German voters. They'd been able to bring together all of the major center parties from the left and the right. And it was this coalition that prevented Germany from experiencing a more violent revolution or civil war after World War I was over. However, these efforts to prevent further revolution came at the cost of violence, some of which we discussed last week. In early 1919, the Weimar leaders had to fend off revolutionary activity from the left. Those who took part in those strikes and protests felt that the Social Democrat-led government did not take the reforms in Germany far enough. In these efforts, the government felt forced to turn to former members of the military and the right-wing conservative political parties to help support possible actions against revolution. These right-wing parties had been thrown out of almost all power when the war had ended. They'd been one of the strongest to support the prosecution of the war and the monarchy, but both of those were now over over, and so the far right for a time felt a bit paralyzed. The last months of 1918 would see their power reach its lowest ebb, but events like the Spartacist revolt and then the wave of strikes in the spring of 1919 helped their position to begin to recover. At this time, the German right-wing political parties were very divided. Many of the parties were led by fiercely independent leaders, a situation that would continue throughout the interwar years. Even if they were deeply divided on certain issues, though, there was a general agreement among these groups about what they hoped to achieve. Speaking very generally here, they wanted to remove the social changes that had been put in place by the 1918 reforms. They wanted to greatly reduce the power of the socialists, and they wanted to reform, at the extreme end, abolish, the parliamentary nature of the Weimar government. Already at this early stage, these parties were utilizing the stab-in-the-back myth, the idea that the German army had been betrayed by the socialist leaders in Berlin. This was very powerful for these groups, because so much of their support, and especially their most uh, passionate supporters, were formerly in the military. The stab-in-the-back concept would be at the core of the beliefs of the German right throughout the interwar period, and due to its importance, it's probably worth reiterating why it was absolutely false. It was Ludendorff and the military leaders who asked the leaders in Berlin to begin serious peace talks with the Allies. When they asked that this take place, the German armies were on the verge of collapse, and it had become clear that they were unable to stop the Allies on the battlefield. This, there was initially some resistance from the political leaders, but Ludendorff and other military leaders made it clear that peace was absolutely necessary. Then, in 1919, it would be Ludendorff who would give his name to the stab-in-the-back myth. He, could, he would do this because the conversations at military headquarters were private, while the peace overtures and its resulting armistice were very public, so he just shifted blame onto somebody else instead of himself. This brings us to the cap push. Push is a Swiss-German word that means to knock or thrust, but around this time in history, it takes on a very different meaning. During the interwar years, it came to be used to refer to an attempted violent overthrow of a government, especially a German government. There would be several of them during this period, and the first would be the Kopp Push in 1920. They were generally executed by the most militant far-right groups, and they would generally involve reaching out to the head of the German army to ask him to join them. During the 1920s, or the early 1920s, this would be General Hans von Siecht, and on multiple occasions he would be asked by groups from around the country to join them and to launch a coup d'etat. 
This was seen as a required step because those executing the push often only represented a small group, and so they depended on the support of the military to provide legitimacy and to act as a unifying rallying point for other right-wing political parties. The hope was this rallying point would cause the more moderate right-wing parties to support the push, and since they were generally not involved in the planning, and also generally favored a more political approach to gaining control, they really needed the army to pull these groups into such radical action. The Cop Push would be named after Wolfgang Kopp, a mostly forgettable government official from East Prussia. Kopp would be supported and the push would be executed by former Free Corps men commanded by General von Lutwitz, who had been one of the originators and founders of the Free Corps concept. On May 13, 1920, men of the Earhart Brigade, under the command of Lutwitz, would seize several key buildings in the government district in Berlin. Once these buildings were seized, Kopp was proclaimed Chancellor of Germany. Up to this point, the push was going mostly according to plan. The Weimar government had been totally, not been totally surprised by the push. In fact, most of the facts about the plan were known days before it was launched. There were, however, many people within the government that not only knew about the push, but also supported its end goal of overthrowing the Weimar government and instituting a military-supported dictatorship. By the end of March 13th, the push seemed to have accomplished its goals. The Kopp government was in place in Berlin, and it had been recognized as the national authority by several local administrations in northern and eastern Germany. During all of this, the police and the army had barely raised a finger in protest, and instead had mostly stood by and allowed the events to unfold. Even with these early successes, the push would rapidly fall apart due to the actions of the workers and citizens of Berlin and other cities. On March 14th, just a day after the push was launched, a general strike began in Berlin. Public transit stopped running, water and electricity were turned off, and the workers took to the streets. By the next day, it was clear that the cop government did not have a clear response for these disturbances. It did not have the military muscle in the city to deal with the mass of striking workers. Food was becoming a problem in Berlin, and the head of the Reichsbank was refusing to give any money to the new administration, making it impossible to pay for anything. The order would eventually be sent out to begin attempting to put down the protests by force, but that did not come out until the afternoon of the 16th, by which point they were beyond the abilities of the troops loyal to the Kopp government to control. On the 17th, Kopp fled the capital, with Lutwitz following a few hours later. The striking workers in Berlin, as well as around Germany, had prevented Kopp from solidifying his power, but there was still the open question of whether or not they would allow the previous government to regain their position. While the push had failed, the resulting changes in the German political landscape were, in my opinion, somewhat surprising. Because their actions had been so successful at preventing the cop government from taking control, socialist groups all over the country were emboldened. This included those that had previously been a part of the Social Democratic Party. When the events were happening in Berlin, the central party leadership had been inactive, but lower groups had banded together to launch their own actions. These actions often included working closely with the communists or the independent socialists. The new confidence caused many to question the position of the social democratic leadership, and if they were taking the country down the right path. This meant that the erosion of support from the far left for the social democrats just continued. 
In Berlin, the Social Democrats, who had just been almost unseated by a right-wing push, became even more dependent on right-wing groups to maintain their control. This included from people within the government that had known about and supported Kopp in his actions. This prevented any large changes within the government, even though it was clear that there were people of dubious loyalty, dubious at best, holding various positions. In June, there was another round of elections, and during these, there would be changes to the makeup of the government. Basically, the Weimar coalition of center parties lost a large number of seats within the government. Both the parties on the far left, like the USPD and the Communists, and the parties on the far right, like the People's Party and the National Liberals, gained large numbers of votes. This increased the polarization of the political parties in Germany, which did nothing to reduce political tensions in the country as well. Along with political polarization, there was also geographic polarization, which resulted in very strong centers of power for some of the political groups with very different views on the best path forward for Germany. For example, some of the most active right-wing parties gathered in Munich, while in Saxony, support for the communists was very strong. In these areas, the most radical groups would sort of incubate for years, with actions during and after the Ruhr crisis causing some of them to take additional steps to try and expand their power beyond their localities into all of Germany. Speaking of Saxony, let's discuss the situation in Saxony just a bit. Even though it's slightly out of order on our timeline, I think how the situation in the region is handled is a really good illustration of the path that the Weimar government would take during the 1920s. Up until the Ruhr crisis in 1923, the Saxon government would be led by the Social Democrat Dr. Erich Ziegner. There was, however, a big difference between the Social Democrats in Saxony when compared with the National Social Democrats in Berlin. Compared to the rest of Germany, Saxony was heavily socialist, far more than any other area, and this meant that Ziegner and the so Saxon Social Democrats could adopt a far more socialist-focused set of policies, as well as openly working with the German Communist Party. During the COP push, demonstrations by workers in Saxony would be some of the most well-supported in all of Germany. In both Leipzig and Dresden, soldiers would fire into crowds of demonstrators, leading to clashes between the two groups. After the COP push uh, was over, the situation in Saxony would mostly return to normal until 1923. It was in that year that the Ruhr crisis occurred, and near the end of the crisis, the Berlin leaders decided that it would be a good opportunity to sort of deal with Saxony. When Bavaria declared a state of emergency and began to give in to French demands, the Reichswehr was sent into Saxony to demand large changes from Ziegner and the Saxon government under the guise of saying that they were getting ready to start some sort of revolution. The key part of this demand was that Ziegner could stay in power if he formed a new government without the communists. Ziegner was unwilling to take this step and he was removed from his position. These actions taken by the government in Berlin were just more on a long list of actions that many felt displayed that the Social Democrats who were leading the Weimar government could not be trusted by the other socialists. It would also be another example of why their influence on and their support from the left would continue to decrease. While the internal political changes were taking place in Germany, the country was not able to exist in a vacuum, and in fact it was under the influence of several external groups. One of these were the Russian communists, who were trying to support and encourage a further revolution in Germany. There were two main phases for relations between Germany and Soviet Russia during the early years of the Weimar period. 
The first phase was characterized by the Russians providing strong support for the Spartacists, Communists, and other radical groups within Germany. During this time, the Social Democrats saw the Russians as a threat to Germany, believing that they were trying to encourage revolution within Germany, a fair assessment because that's exactly what they were trying to do. After 1921, this would begin to change and relations would enter the second stage. During this time, the Russians would begin to reduce their support for radical political groups in Germany, and the Social Democrats would begin to favor better relations with Russia. These improving relations would result in the Treaty of Rapallo in April 1922. This treaty had all of the normal clauses that are generally found in similar treaties, uh, diplomatic relations, any territorial disagreements were handled, and they both agreed to grant each other most favored nation status for trading purposes. This gave the Russians a critical trading partner at a time when few foreign countries even recognized the government's legitimacy. They would be able to procure German financial and economic help in rebuilding the Russian industrial base and infrastructure around the country. Germany would also gain an important trading partner, with the Western nations still relatively hostile. Uh, Russia was one of the few available options. There was also a secret part of the treaty which occurred between the German army and the Russian leaders. Most of these negotiations revolved around German companies being allowed to build manufacturing centers and funding Russian manufacturing of military goods. This was the only outlet for Germany to continue any form of military construction due to the causes of the Versailles Treaty. In later years, this cooperation between Germany and Russia would expand, but at this early time, it was mostly focused on German companies using Russian factories to build German weapons to sell to the Russians. While the Weimar government was working through internal problems and was trying to recreate relations with other countries, it also had to deal with some of the causes from the Treaties of Versailles. One of these related to Upper Silesia, a disputed territory in eastern Germany on the border with Poland. Like several other areas around Europe, instead of making a definitive judgment at the Paris Peace Conference, the Supreme Council instead elected to schedule a plebiscite in the future so that the people could decide which country they wanted to belong to. There was initially some disagreement about who should be allowed to vote. Uh, The initial position was that only citizens from before the war could vote. But there was a growing push for all residents to be allowed to cast a ballot, which was important to the Germans, since large numbers of Germans had moved into the area during the war. In the run-up to the plebiscite, Silesia was occupied by a joint British, French, and Italian force, and this occupation and the handling of the plebiscite would be an important moment for British relations in the post-war period. By the time that the occupation began in early 1920, uh, British opinion, both in the government and among the British people, had already begun to change from what it had been immediately after the war was over to, to what it was in the 20s. In London, the goal was to get trade with Germany going again as quickly as possible. This was seen as one of the ways to solve the budgetary problems that were being experienced by the British government at this time. The French were still very much focused on punishing Germany, and that meant taking a very hard line on items like the plebiscite, and also making sure that Germany obeyed the absolute letter of the law from the Treaty of Versailles. These disagreements, or I guess just different viewpoints on how to handle Germany, would play a role in the Silesian plebiscite, but they would be front and center during the rural crisis, which would follow two years later. 
At the end of the day, the British never officially ratified the treaty that had been created to bind them in a mutual assistance pact with France against Germany. They'd never really put it into place. And this meant that the old alliance was still held together only as long as the French and British could agree on policy. And they came very close to falling apart completely in the early 1920s. The plebiscite in Upper Silesia would take place on March 20th, 1921. During the actual voting, there were no instances of violence, and instead events were very peaceful, which was kind of unexpected. 98% of eligible voters took part, and the final numbers were 707,488 for Germany and 479,369 for Poland. The idea of a partition of Silesia had always been present during the discussions for the plebiscite. The Germans were of course strongly against this, since they held a majority in Silesia, as I just mentioned. Even though the voting had been peaceful, the resulting confusion about partition or no partition caused confusion and violence. The reason that partition was so attractive to Poland, and therefore to the Western Allies, was that Silesia was split quite evenly in its population distribution. The southern areas were heavily Polish, with the northern areas heavily German, and both areas voted along those lines. However, the most important parts of Silesia, all of the industry, the coal mines, were, of course, right in the middle. The final decision on partition would not be made until early August, and during the summer of 1921, the rioting and violence throughout Silesia began to increase. More Allied troops, especially British troops, were brought in to try and maintain peace. While the Supreme Council decided that partition would happen, the precise border was not determined. Instead of making a decision, the issue was given over to the League of Nations. Eventually, and after many discussions, the League would draw a line that left 57% of Silesia's inhabitants and 70% of its territory in Germany. But most importantly, most of the industry and the coal mines went to Poland. These decisions would play a role in Germany's later decisions around the rural crisis, because removing the coal and industry from Germany and Silesia made it less able to meet its reparation requirements, at least according to the government in Berlin. Up until this point, all we've talked about are problems that the Weimar leaders were trying to work their way through. And another item onto this pile of problems were the serious economic issues that Germany was experiencing during the war. The German economy had been wrecked by the demands of the war, and then the economic isolation that it experienced after defeat. Among the many problems were the huge amounts of inflation. The inflation, and eventually hyperinflation during this period, is legendary. This is where the stories of like people taking a wheelbarrow full of money to go buy a loaf of bread comes from. The inflation rate became so bad that it was normal for people to spend money as soon as they got it. Workers would buy food immediately after getting paid because if they waited even a single day, if they waited even overnight, they might not be able to afford the bread the next day. From the perspective of the government, it also made taxation almost entirely worthless. Because regardless of the amount of tax that was levied, by the time the government received the money, it was useless. The burden of this inflation weighed most heavily, as most burdens do, on the shoulders of the wage earners. It was in fact actually advantageous for some sectors of society, especially people who owned agriculture or manufacturing. This meant that when inflation began to slow in 1923, it became clear that since the beginning of the war in 1914, there were drastic changes to the economy and wealth within the country. 
Wages for most workers were substantially below what they had been before the war, and at the same time, the middle and upper classes were actually in a better position. This was a large problem for the Weimar leaders, but they were very successful in channeling some of the blame for this inequality into reparations and onto the Allies. The Allies would in some ways play into this narrative, like when they sent military troops into the Ruhr region in an attempt to compel the Germans to continue reparations payments, an action that would precipitate the Ruhr crisis, which we will discuss next episode.